Ruth and I are on a lunch adventure. Fast, casual Ethiopian food at Union Market. And Ruth, well, she feels uncomfortable. What do you feel like? I don't know, one of those, like, food Instagram people. You know what I'm talking about. This place is called Gorsha, and the stand has a really sleek look. It's minimalist and modern, and that's pretty on brand for Union Market. One Gorsha bowl and an order of injera pockets, basically Ethiopian tacos, set us back $30. It's pretty standard, actually, for a fast casual spot in D.C. It tastes like Ethiopian food that I've had. What about you? Everything's drizzled in like a yogurt honey sauce, which is kind of giving it tahini vibes. Ruth and I aren't experts, but I think we can say that Gorsha tasted similar to meals we'd eaten at places like Zenebech or Habesha Market. But something about eating it at Union Market of all places made me feel like, I don't know, the worst caricature of my millennial self. Yeah, we were used to big platters of Ethiopian food. Shared. Celebratory. At Gorsha, everything was designed for one person to eat alone. Yeah, I think that's why we felt weird about it. There was a bit of a cultural disconnect. Take the restaurant's name. The word Gorsha describes the Ethiopian practice of feeding someone by hand, and yet we ate our Gorsha bowl, as it was called, with a fork. This is Dish City from WAMU. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Ford. We tell stories of city change through DC's iconic foods. This time, we're talking about a DC mainstay, Ethiopian cuisine. When we were at Union Market, it kind of felt maybe unfair to judge Gorsha for being a quick lunch for a solo diner. I mean, it's made by a young Ethiopian chef. If he can't experiment with Ethiopian food, who can? Still, we felt like things were just off. Where was the group, the shared platter? This time on Dish City, what happens when a 3,000-year-old cuisine gets remixed? That this, this is happening is both healthy and bad. <laughs> the healthy thing is that people are entering it from a level of passion. The other side of that is you're going to have a lot of bad food. D.C. is home to the largest population of Ethiopian immigrants in the U.S., Many of them came here because of a civil war that lasted from the 1970s to the 1990s. There was a famine, a military coup, and more than a million people died. Many fleeing the country were drawn to D.C. because it was a majority black town, Chocolate City. It was also home to the Ethiopian embassy and Howard University, one of the nation's premier historically black colleges. By the 1990s, there were Ethiopian community centers, Ethiopian newspapers, and there was even a separate phone book to index Ethiopian businesses throughout the Washington region. Parts of the Shaw neighborhood began to go by the name Little Ethiopia, and that same thing happened on 18th Street in Adams Morgan. There would be like a day you would come where it was clearly that they, all the Ethiopian restaurants were cooking because it would just smell like onions all down 18th Street. Like, I remember that growing up. Sade Makonin is a local Ethiopian-American artist who often focuses on identity and migration. We wanted to learn about Ethiopian cuisine from someone who grew up with it, so we met up with her at Zenovich, one of D.C.'s most popular Ethiopian restaurants and, conveniently, the one closest to my apartment. Sade brought her friend Kume and her young son, Sanai. Well, in Ethiopian culture, you wait until everyone's at the table to eat. Thanks for waiting for us. thank you. We're in Ethiopia. We're in an Ethiopian restaurant. Zenebech is the kind of place where you take an out-of-town friend to catch up for hours. One, because it's delicious. And two, because it feels both special and unique to D.C. 
Can I? So instead of the tomatine fitzfoots, I would typically probably go with more gomen, the greens, but there's also spinach though. Is that too many greens? The food arrives on an injera lined plate. Beef tibs seasoned with the Ethiopian chili spice blend berbere, lentils, collard greens, beets, green beans, tomatoes, and jalapenos. We grab pieces of injera and scoop up the veggies and the meat. It's a pretty classic presentation. Cenebech originally opened in Shaw as an injera bakery in 1993. Then it grew into a restaurant. It eventually became a favorite in the neighborhood, a spot that was for Ethiopians by Ethiopians. Michael Demissi, the son of Zenebich's founders, says the original location was like a deli-slash-grocery-slash-restaurant. If you walked in, it would look like a hole in the wall. That's what a lot of our customers uh, would say, it's a hole in the wall. But once you get in, it's, it's warm, um, and you just feel like you're literally at your dinner table at home. Over the next 20 years or so, Shaw changed radically. Fancier buildings attracted a new clientele, and locals like Sade noticed. So there are no Ethiopians, or not no, but a lot less Ethiopians who were their customers. There is something jarring about that. Like, same thing with Dukum. Dukum used to be packed with Ethiopians. I would be there. A bunch of people I knew would go there. Now it's, I don't know, I walk by because I look and I look inside and I'm like, I don't see any Ethiopian, let alone <laughs> person of color when I be. By 2016, Zenebech sat on a piece of land worth about a million dollars. And after holding out for years, the family decided to sell, along with their neighbors. Michael and his family moved the restaurant to Adams Morgan, determined to keep the family feel of the place. We try to recreate that aspect of everything, uh, but not the hole-in-the-wall aspect. We'd like it to be a proper restaurant that, you know, you'd be proud to bring guests over or out-of-town friends if you want to bring them over. Zenebech added a bar, got rid of the fluorescent lights, and put up artwork. Michael and his family also considered setting the tables with forks, but that was never a real option, according to his mom, who Zenebich is named after. We together by our hand. We don't know spoon. That is the Ethiopian concept of Gorsha. Adding utensils to the table would remove the intimacy of sharing a meal. We drink, we eat, we talk, we laugh. Uh, this is Ethiopian culture. So Michael and the rest of his family were relying on traditional food while upgrading their space to attract new customers in Adams Morgan. But obviously, that's not the only way to grow your business. Back in Shaw, the neighborhood Zenebich vacated, a family restaurant called Etete was trying a new strategy. So they called Chris Roberson. These African um, entrepreneurs, they have a restaurant. They want to change it over. They're looking to go in a new direction. Their mom's retiring. They want to like really have like a hot, hot restaurant over here. Chris had been working as a chef in the D.C. area for years, including at the acclaimed French restaurant Central. And he answered the call from Atete. The family wanted him to create a hip version of Atete's menu to bring new business to the restaurant. He pushed the traditional platters to the bottom of the menu and leaned heavily into small plates. Some of the new dishes repackaged Ethiopian food as items from other cuisines. You'd see it in their injera tacos and their lentil hummus and their beef tartare kidfo. But... Kitfo and beef tartare are just like similar presentations of raw beef, so the name is the only thing that's really changing? Yeah, beef tartare kitfo and a lot of Atete's flavors were already familiar if you had eaten traditional Ethiopian food before, but Atete's new presentations and the names for their dishes seem to target a different crowd. People are looking at me like, oh, you're messing with Ethiopian cuisine. What's wrong with you? I'm just like, hold on, this family wanted me to make something. I'm kind of like 
building an idea we have here. You're not really prepared for what the community has to say about this. The Washington Post wrote a story about Atete describing Chris as an innovator. The headline, this restaurant serves modern Ethiopian food that you don't eat with your hands. And the internet kind of freaked out at the implication. I mean, is eating with your hands a bad thing? What would you say if someone suggested that a Chinese restaurant was more modern because they didn't serve food with chopsticks? Me, I'm like, I'm not telling people that this is the gospel and you have to do it this way and I'm making this better and twisting my mustache and being like, you peasants don't understand refined cuisine. <laughs> like, nah, that's somebody else's. Somebody else can do that. I'm like, I'm just making food that I think tastes good. If you want to come try it, come try it um, and, and, and let's have a good time. Atete's owner said at the time that they wanted to make Atete the Resika of Ethiopian restaurants. And why not? Resika is a high-end Indian restaurant in D.C. and it's been popular for years. Certainly Ethiopian cuisine is worthy of the same attention and acclaim as Indian food. But here's what happens when you try to repackage traditional food in a fine dining context. People argue that it doesn't taste authentic. Surely there's room for chefs to put their own spin on a cuisine, but how much can you remix traditional dishes before they become something else entirely? After the break, we ask maybe the most famous Ethiopian chef in America to weigh in. I just think if you're uh, passionate about traditional Ethiopian food, double down. That's next. Dish City is an original production of WAMU, your listener-supported public radio station in Washington, D.C. Shows like this one are only possible because of listeners like you. Show your support for Dish City. Become a member of WAMU today at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button. And thanks for your support. So we've got two different strategies. Zenebech upgrading their space and moving to Adams Morgan, but sticking to traditional food. And Atete staying in Shaw, taking a risk and going upscale. While all this was going down, celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson came to town to film an episode of his TV show, No Passport Required. And as an immigrant born in Ethiopia and raised in Sweden, food to me has always told a deeper, more personal story. Food media has treated Marcus as sort of an ambassador for Ethiopian cuisine, even though he's not necessarily known for traditional Ethiopian cooking. He rose to fame in New York as the executive chef of Aquavit, a Swedish fine dining restaurant. Then he attempted upscale Pan-African cuisine, but received lukewarm reviews. He left and opened his hit soul food restaurant, Red Rooster, in Harlem, and now he runs nearly a dozen other spots. Even though Marcus isn't based in D.C., the city holds sentimental value for him. He's been visiting the district for 20 years, and he says in his show that it's the first place he started to identify as Ethiopian. So he's got some skin in this game. We sat down with him and asked, what does he think Ethiopian restaurants should do to survive? I just think if you're passionate about traditional Ethiopian food, double down. Have a smaller community to cook for, but people come more loyally, double down. And if you are... From uh, coming from it from a level where you are introducing Western techniques and you're mixing it, be great at it. Make a commitment and work, re, you know, work at it, and the rest will follow. Marcus Samuelson thinks if you cook traditional, the diners will come. Is that all it takes, though? You might be able to cook traditional food that people love, like Zenebich, but I'm kind of skeptical that commitment is really all it takes to survive in a place like D.C., especially if you're in a changing neighborhood, like Atete is, in Shaw. I guess I thought it was a little bit more complicated than that, so in an attempt to push back, I tried to describe the fork in the road I thought local restaurants were facing. 
think there's this idea, though, that certain cuisines that have previously not been considered American are now starting to get more popular in major cities like the D.C. area. But, you know, Ethiopian food is one of these local cuisines that pe- a lot of people love, but it's at this, it's still kind of in this stage where people consider it like, quote unquote, ethnic food. Um, so you're saying like double down. So many things about what you just said. I cannot like that. It's like stop before you get. You are just like so off base with everything you just said. Okay, like, tell me where I wrong. Come on, wrong. what are you talking about? Like, like Ethiopian food is not American food because it's from Ethiopia, and it doesn't make it worse or better or anything. But why chase? some ratings that doesn't even, it's not even made for you. Ethiopian food is delicious, and it was delicious for about circa 3,000 years before America was even discovered. So I don't think any Ethiopian mom that tries to do incredible Ethiopian food gives a shit if what America thinks about it. She knows that I'm going to cook good food and people will come to it. And there are thousands of great examples of that. That's where you have very successful Ethiopian mom and pop shop, just like you have with other ethnic restaurants. So it's not some goal to end up on someone's list. It's a goal to make a living for your family and stand for something. This conversation still makes me squirm. Ethiopian food isn't American food? I mean, what is American food if not an amalgam of different immigrant cuisines? And what is he saying when he says ratings weren't made for Ethiopian food? If we're going to hold on to ratings and reviews as markers of success, then they should be available to all restaurants. I think maybe he misunderstood what you were saying. Like, I think there are Ethiopian mom and pop shops that care definitely what America thinks of their food. The family at Atete did. We're weighing two different things, critical acclaim and commercial success. There's overlap. I mean, a good review might lead to more customers walking through your door. But at the end of the day, a restaurant needs foot traffic to stay open. Atete had good reviews, but it didn't necessarily lead to diners. And Marcus is right. You don't need critical acclaim and high ratings to be successful, but they help. They definitely helped Marcus. Right. You do what it takes to get people in the door. It seems like every restaurant owner has to ask, what will Washingtonians pay for? Yeah, I think that's the question we're trying to answer here. If if you're Marcus, yeah, you can say you don't care what mainstream America thinks of your food. But if you're not a celebrity chef, you might need mainstream America to come eat your food, to keep your doors open. And if the America on your block is changing... Yeah, Chris Roberson, the chef who revamped Atete, he definitely knows what that feels like. I feel like they were they wanted everybody to come to the restaurant. They wanted money through the door, right? It really doesn't matter who's bringing it. Um, but it definitely wasn't for, like, the Ethiopian community. The Ethiopian community's not messing with that. They're going across the street. They're going to have a show market. They're going to sit down. They're going to have a good time. But you got to, like, accept, like, what kind of comes with that. Atete closed in August of 2018. How did you kind of know that things weren't working towards the end. Oh, you you know things aren't working in the beginning. The end is just the end. Everybody else knows it's the end. When you're looking into an empty restaurant, you're like, oh shit, it's over. Like, you're a new place, you're in a pretty busy area. Like, there's a lot of foot traffic out here. Um, And you don't have people in here? Oh no, you're not gonna make it. Chris says it was clear that the restaurant wasn't designed for DC's Ethiopian community. He says it was for gentrifiers. When you're standing on that street as a liquor store owner or hookah shop, restaurant, and you're like, damn, they're not coming in. Like, these young white kids or whatever aren't, you know, even our young Ethiopian kids, like, 
whenever you're in it, um, and that goes beyond, I guess, ethnicity, like whoever's standing on their block in their neighborhood, in their community, and looking out and being like, oh, man, I'm not getting the business I used to get. I'm not. What can I do to keep money going into my kid's college fund or whatever it is? Like, it's going to be CBD-infused Burberry up in here or something. I don't know. It's going to be whatever we can put on this plate to get you in here. Okay. (laughs) I don't know about CBD-infused Burberry, but I get it. There's so much competition for diners out there that it seems like you really have to do something crazy to get people's attention. I think that people should just make what they want to make, make their make what they love making, make what they're going to be proud of. Um, and don't be ashamed of making a business decision because you need to feed your family. If you want to put a burger on your menu, put a burger on your menu and see if you get more people in there. I don't know. I, I can see both sides of it. Local artist and Ethiopian-American Sade Makonen. I mean, from the perspective of like, of someone who takes pride of, in my culture and and from and being black and like thinking, you know, wanting things to to cater like for the people by the people kind of, you know, mentality that it is upsetting to see that some of these restaurants kind of turn their backs on their community in that way, but at the same time then I'm like I think about it in terms of survival, like how are they going to keep up with the changes? Like cuz a lot of Ethiopian restaurants are shutting down. So it's like it almost feels like they're making a choice, but it it to a degree is a forced choice. Because, like, if they want to stick around and afford, you know, staying in this whatever neighborhood, like, they probably do have to, I guess, keep up with the times or, you know. I'm Chinese-American, and I have felt this same tension as restaurants try to make Chinese food trendy. On one hand, it's uncomfortable to watch Chinese food get redefined for the kind of diner that goes to Union Market. And on the other hand, does Chinese food in America need to stay traditional in order to be considered authentic? This is such a stress point for Asian Americans that it popped up in the romantic comedy Always Be My Maybe on Netflix. Here's a scene where the stoner boyfriend Marcus debates his celebrity chef girlfriend Sasha. You know what other term I hate? Elevated Asian cuisine. Asian food isn't supposed to be elevated. It's supposed to be authentic. That's what you used to make with my mom. I don't know why you're doing this kind of stuff now. So now you're saying my food isn't authentic. It's not authentic. Asian food shouldn't be served in a shot glass. It should be served in a big-ass bowl. You're just catering to rich white people. Personally, I think authenticity is kind of a made-up standard for gatekeepers. Whenever someone says something is authentic, all they mean is that it's true to their experience. Can authentic food only be served in a big-ass bowl or on an injera platter? Can it only be made by grandmas? Foods, like people, change. And if you're cooking and presenting the food with respect, there's no reason why Chinese food, or Ethiopian food for that matter, shouldn't reflect other cooking techniques, cultures, and experiences. I mean, maybe it's about that time for Ethiopian food to now go through that, because it's been around in the States for a couple decades. And that seems to be like the trajectory for immigrant food. It eventually comes to a point where there's like some kind of fusion that happens, and... Um, and it's probably easier for me to accept than like my parents' generation. For them, they're like, what the hell is this, you know? But um, I guess it's, it maybe, you know, I never thought about this way, but like maybe it is a reflection of that this culture now has is producing generations in the United States and the food along with the actual culture is 
changing. When the food you order arrives at your table, you don't know what's motivating the chef. You don't know why certain choices are made. And I think that that explains why we were uncomfortable at our meal at Union Market. Yeah, but I think we've learned that you have to give whoever is cooking some room because there's really no way to know what authentic means to that person. Dish City is produced by me, Ruth Tam. And me, Patrick Fort. Our editor is Ponzi Raj. And our theme music is by Daniel Peterschmidt. And Ben Privet mixes the show. WAMU's general manager is JJ Yor, and Andy McDaniel oversees all of the content that we make. Find us online on Twitter and Instagram at Dish City, and our email is dishcity at WAMU.org. If you want to talk to us in person about this episode, we'll be grabbing drinks at bars around the district the Tuesday after each episode drops. You can find details at dishcity.org. If you love Dish City, tell a friend about it and review us on your podcast app. It helps future listeners find the show. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Dish City. So hit that subscribe button. That way we will be in your queue when you wake up next Thursday. Smash it. Smash it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening. 